welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, and joining me again this week is Peter Jancy from Crew Jancy out of Oregon. Now, Peter, last week you told us the story of Dr. Stanley Patrick Weber and just how he was able to get away with heinous crimes against children for years under the guise of being a physician. This week, I want to talk a little bit about the case and how it's going right now. So Weber was first um, charged and tried uh, in Montana for his abuse of victims in Montana. Several of those victims are my clients. Um, He was convicted. Uh, He was then again prosecuted uh, and convicted for his abuse uh, in South Dakota. And he's serving five life sentences uh, in federal prison. The the federal prosecution um, and the work of of um, the prosecutor, you know, the tribal prosecutor, Elaine Yellowhorse, um, early on caught the attention of media. And um, so the Wall Street Journal and Frontline, PBS's Frontline news program began investigating and put out a, um, a documentary called Predator on the Reservation in early, very early 2019. And the combination of the prosecution of Weber and um, the media work um, about the IHS situation really started to put pressure on the federal government to basically tell the public what they were going to do about this situation and um, whether they were going to take any action um, finally. There are so many ways I want to go with this conversation of keeping them all together is a bit of a jumble. Has, has the federal government, so we're talking about just there's historical mistrust that deserved, but this is very much present harm and it's harm of two institutions that we're supposed to trust. One, the federal government and two, the healthcare institution. Has the government reached out to your clients? Have they done anything to try to remedy any of this? Well, I I think that what the government would tell you is yes, we've we've investigated, and um, 
you know, I think that deserves a little explanation. Um, you know, once the media started to shine a light on, on this case, my view is the federal government realized it had no choice but to do something. And so there was sort of a series of um, efforts by bureaucrats within the government to begin uh, doing something. And the doing something was various types of kind of internal investigations. So you have the agency itself hiring a independent contractor to do an internal investigation, um, an outfit called Integritas. And the Integritas investigators uh, get paid $700,000 to do an internal investigation about how this could happen. Um, meanwhile, as Integritas is investigating, uh, the Senate Oversight Committee um, the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs um, begins asking questions of agency leadership. And um, they find out about the Integritas investigation and ask for a copy. What's fascinating is even at this point, in, after Weber's been convicted, after the story has started to become public, the agency decides that it's going to continue to keep secrets about what happened. They refuse to give a complete copy of the Integritas investigation to the Senate committee. And the Senate committee starts sort of a, a public campaign of calling for this report. Um, meanwhile, the federal, uh, the, the, the executive administration um, commissions a presidential task force to begin its own investigation and talk about how this could happen. Um, and the, uh, the Department of, of Health and Human Services that the agency sits under also has its inspector general do an investigation. So you've got all these investigations going on, but what's missing from the center of all of this really is the victims. We've got lots of discussion about the failures that happened inside the agency and within IHS over a 30 year period to allow Dr. Weber to just prey on so many children. And we've got lots of admissions by the government at every level in these investigations saying, this is our fault, we screwed up, we didn't do what we should have done, we allowed this abuse to happen. And nobody's talking to the victims. There's no effort to hear from the victims about their experience. There's no effort to try to understand not only what happened to them at the mo at the time that Weber abused them, but what they've had to live through in the 20, 30 years since this happened to them. Um, there's no effort to compensate those victims or to make amends to them or to uh, express remorse directly to them. Um, you know, it's it's kind of they're sort of the elephant in the room that no one's addressing. Um, I was thinking about it this morning, and the example that came to mind is if you had, you know, the government, someone in the government uh, caused a terrible uh, car wreck, and you've got the people that are injured laying on the ground around this car wreck, and you've got a circle of people from the government all standing around saying, gosh, this was terrible, this was our fault, this was terrible, but no one's reaching down to help or treat or address the victims, they're just totally overlooked. And I think that that is a really good description for the entire criminal justice system, which is why this podcast exists um, and, and why we have attorneys who represent victims so zealously, because that's what happens in the criminal justice system often, 
we look at what went wrong in the rights of the defendant. Um, and a lot of times victims are, are shuffled to the sidelines. I want to stay on the investigation for just another minute. Did the investigation indicate or any of the investigations indicate how prevalent this is within IHS? I mean, was this a one-off doctor? Did they, did they look at how prevalent this could be? It, it seems hard to believe that this is a one-off case. Absolutely. I think there's no, this is not a one-off case. Um, the investigation, the, the internal investigation conducted by the agency speaks to a number of other situations where uh, IHS doctors uh, in some way or another engaged in sexual misconduct or sexual abuse or exploited people. Um, so there are definitely other examples out there um, that were touched on by the investigation by the agency and to some degree by some of the other investigations that have been undertaken. But, you know, I, I guess my concern is we can't rely on these internal investigations by the entity that is responsible um, to provide us with sort of the universe of information about what happened. And, you know, you have, in this situation, you have a vulnerable population being subjected to abuse, which we know is, um, you know, very underreported by victims. And you have that occurring within the context of a, an organization that has a protocol and a culture of suppressing reports. And when you add those dynamics together, um, I think it's, it's just very clear from our work in cases against the Catholic Church and other institutions that that's sort of a, um, uh, you know, a prime um, hunting ground for predators. That is a, a situation that isn't just, oh, is there abuse happening? But that's a situation that is, um, you know, affirmatively attractive to predators. When, when people, people that, that prey on children in this way and are, are that dedicated uh, to those types of, of um, proclivities, uh, they're highly aware of, of situations that are vulnerable to their, you know, to their abuse. And so I think you have not just abuse because that happens in all youth serving organizations or all organizations of trust, but I think you've got a situation um, that probably attracted people uh, to, to those roles who wanted to prey on children. So the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts, the Olympics, they've all had their watershed moments where we finally got the right amount of attention that the organizations are at least attempting to make policy change, which is part of the goal of civil justice because you can't hold an organization criminally liable and yet they are liable for a lot of this. So what is it going to take for this to have its watershed moment? And how do, how do we protect these children going forward? Well, it's a very difficult question. I, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I think that we're seeing some, um, some strides in the right direction here. I think the work of, of tribal prosecutors, I think the work of the media in shining a light on this um, has been uh, incredibly important. Um, I think the courage of our clients um, and the other victims who have come forward and brought civil claims is incredibly important. Um, you know, as long as an organization believes that it is less 
expensive and less damaging to keep secrets and to conceal, they will do that. And if they believe that victims will not come forward or that nobody will care about what happened to them, they will continue sort of, um, you know, their, their standard operating procedures. Um, but when we have lots of people starting to become aware of a problem and we have victims speaking out, not just about what they experienced at the time, but about the long-term repercussions of what happened to them, um, you know, we start to build momentum. And, you know, what's concerning here, I think, is we have to work within a system created by the entity that we're trying to hold accountable. And the, um, whether it's state governments or federal government, they write the rules for themselves. They write the rules of how they can be held accountable. And it's an uphill battle. This is not a case that is um, as straightforward as a case against a you know, religious or civic entity. Um, you know, the government has written special rules that make it harder for victims to bring claims against the government. Um, and so we have some real needs for continuing um, reform to allow those who are abused or exploited by uh, government actors to get the same shot at justice that um, those who are abused by, you know, non-government actors get. What's tragic here is you've got a community and a population that has experienced, you know, extreme historical prejudice and uh, mistreatment. How did you walk them through de the decision to seek civil justice and what made them finally decide that they wanted to file a civil action? Well, several of my clients, um, you know, all of my clients uh, believed, you know, in one way or another that this was sort of an isolated incident when it happened to them. And they believed, a lot of them believed because of their age and, you know, the other dynamics that were going on, that this must have been something about who they were, that this happened to them because of something about them. You know, they carry that shame and blame that so many victims of sexual exploitation experience. Um, and of course, none of the information about the way that IHS allowed this to happen was public. It was a closely guarded secret in terms of the systemic failings that enabled this. Um, so they went through their lives suffering the, quietly suffering the impacts of the abuse uh, that they had experienced. As the prosecution of Weber began, and as the media attention on the, what had happened began to began to kind of uh, let the story trickle out, they each in their own way came to the realization that this was not their fault and that this was not, um, this was not an isolated incident, that they had been injured because of a pattern of intentional choices made by the federal government and, and its um, employees. And so I think that was, uh, you know, in different ways for each of them, uh, a groundbreaking realization. The long-term concealment and then the government prosecuting and then this um, just gaping silence about any effort to engage with the victims about their experiences or to make amends. I think all those things culminated together for each one of them in a different way. And they all realized that this just was not right. This was, this was something that needed to be addressed. And like most victims, uh, each of them, in addition to being, you know, wanting justice for what happened to them, 
a primary driver for them is they do not want something like this to ever be repeated. We hear that so often from our clients that it's not about the money. It's about this institution did this and they're not protecting our children. So we have to. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the court of claims in, in federal courts. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because there are different rules to it. Most of the cases that come before the Court of Federal Claims are frankly contract-oriented claims. And so we're dealing with a, um, a court and a, a set of procedures that is not regularly asked to sort of consider these types of, of you know, deep psychic um, or psychological emotional harms that are in intentionally inflicted on someone. And so, um, I think, you know, uh, there are some procedural differences, but um, there's also some precedent for, you know, these types of cases in the Court of Federal Claims. There's a, a famous case that one of our um, fellow, uh, or a couple of our fellow NCDBA members um, brought, um, uh, the Laveda Elk case, um, which was a case where a young uh, a girl and young woman uh, was sexually assaulted by a military recruiter. And uh, to their great credit, they tenaciously pursued that case and were able to get a, um, you know, a significant recovery from the Court of Federal Claims um, on that case. But um, that's, a, that's an outlier in terms of the Court of Federal Claims usual docket. Who defends the cases? Uh, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice has a, a, a civil division that, um, and, and a, I think a sub, subdivision within that that is um, routinely assigned to cases within the Court of Federal Claims. And it's been clear in our dealings with them, um, you know, uh, they've been professional. Are you allowed to talk about what defenses they are offering? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to talk about mm -hmm. um you know, one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about in terms of the way that the government has responded, I think you referenced sort of the betrayals earlier, but, you know, what we have here is a situation where the federal government knowingly allowed this to happen to our clients at the time. And then when victims come forward in 2019, 2020, they've betrayed them again. And not only did they not reach out to them affirmatively um, when the criminal prosecutions were going on and or make any kind of, take any kind of initiative, um, but when they sort of left it to the victims to try to get justice for themselves and the victims showed up and said, okay, we're filing this lawsuit because we want you to understand what happened to us was serious and you need to do something about it. They didn't they didn't just treat that neutrally. The government, um, while it was publicly saying how much it cared about victims and how much uh, it was terrible what it had done, uh, at the very same time, in fact, within just a couple of days, it quietly filed a motion to dismiss all of the victims' claims um, on two grounds. Uh, one of their defenses has been that these types of treaties, whatever they say, shouldn't really 
don't really mean that victims of these types of crimes can seek justice, despite the language. We can talk about what that language is. But so one is, this is not a compensable injury, basically, under the treaty. Uh, and then they've also tried to argue that it's just been too long. The statute of limitations shouldn't allow victims to come forward. And of course, the great irony is, of that is they kept their failings and their choices secret for 30 years. And then when victims within months um, or a year say, oh, okay, now that we know that that happened, that was wrong and we deserve justice, they say, oh, well, you waited too long. You should have, you should have brought lawsuits uh, when you were 18, 19, 20 years old, even though we were keeping this information a secret from you. What is the statute of limitations? Each state has its own statute from state to state. There's been a lot of news about windows opening up for statutes of limitations for child sex abuse. What would the limitation, what would the SOL be in this, in a federal case? I believe the government is arguing that uh, our clients should have brought claims within six years of, of turning 18 years old. And, um, you know, the question in our view on the statute of limitations, even under the existing law, which I don't think is trauma-informed, I don't think it reflects uh, any understanding of what victims of child sexual abuse experience um, and, and the great work that's being done by NCVBA and others to try to reform that issue around the country. But from our view, even under the existing law, the question is, what starts that clock ticking? And um, our view is, uh, under existing law in the Court of Federal Claims, you have to know who injured you and what they did to injure you for that clock to start ticking. So we think we have a very strong argument that we're within the statute of limitations. Um, so we think we're, we're uh, in a very good position under existing law in this case because of the specific you know, facts in this case. But undoubtedly, uh, the law for the, the statute of limitations um, for uh, sexual abuse claims in this context needs to change. What has their defense been? What was his defense? Well, I think like most predators, Weber, you know, Weber denied as long as he could uh, that this had happened. Um, and basically at certain points tried to shift the blame to the victims and say that he was being exploited by, by the victims and that they were lying and that they were trying to, you know, get money from him or, or whatnot. Um, you know, totally incredible. Um, you know, the agencies, the agencies trying to understand how something like this happens, how good people or, you know, um, your regular people in an agency that are uh, in contact with a predator like this, how they can make these decisions is, it's admittedly a very difficult thing to understand. Um, and, you know, there is no excuse for, for what they did. I think that, you know, in terms of trying to understand it, um, it's clear that IHS has been underfunded and mismanaged for a very long time um, beyond just issues of abuse of patients. And there have been uh, investigations by the agency and Senate oversight and, um, and media about chronic problems within the agency in terms of staffing and, and funding, et cetera. And so I think, 
a theme that you see in several of the situations within IHS that involve abuse is, um, uh, you know, the agency saying it it needed it needed practitioners, it needed pediatricians, um, it needed doctors. Um, but you know, at its core, of course, the problem with that is the same problem we see with other institutions, which is um, you know, putting the needs of the institution above the, the safety of an individual. And, um, you know, my view, I've said this in other contexts, but, you know, when it, like for a church, you can't, you can't give out enough coats or enough cups of soup to make up for the injury that is caused to that, you know, that one child. And, you know, you can't, you can't balance that checkbook. You can't say, well, it was, you know, it's worth it to keep somebody who might be dangerous around because look at all the good they're doing, or it's worth it to keep these claims and this problem under wraps because we've got to protect our mission. Um, you know, that's the drumbeat that we, that we hear from so many organizations. And, you know, it's what we hear from the Boy Scouts of America right now in, in that case. And so um, I think that, that, these types of organizations have to keep front and center that their very first obligation is the safety of the people that they're in contact with. And if that means that they have to do less um, so that people are safe, uh, that's, that's the reality that they've got to deal with. And um, so, I mean, it's, you know, th this was entirely preventable um, by, by just taking action when they first learned, you know, nearly 30 years before the end of his career, that Dr. Weber was a predator. Did you know in 2021, IHS announced the beginning of a hotline for victims of sexual abuse? Have you heard anything about that? You know, I've, um, I've heard a lot about, you know, sort of these policy initiatives and, and changes that uh, IHS says that it's making. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't discredit any change like that. I don't know what they're hearing from their hotline. But um, to me, uh, changing policies on paper and releasing investigative reports and all those sorts of things are totally empty if you have not made amends with the real victims that you know that are out there. I think, you know, um, policies and practices are important, but the culture is really what protects, you know, kids. And um, IHS is very far from having uh, adopted a culture of child protection, in my view. And I don't think they can do that. Like any organization, I don't think they can have that kind of culture and really be about child protection until they have dealt directly with the victims um, of Dr. Weber and others. You know, Peter, that is so true, not only of this case, but of so many of the cases we discuss on here. That's all the time we have for today. Peter, I wanna thank you for joining us for both of these weeks to discuss these cases. Once again, for our audience, you can find Peter at Crew Jancy in Oregon, and we will, as always, drop his firm information in the show notes. 
Next week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to once again cover the Indian Health Services cases. This time, one of my very special colleagues will be joining us to talk about the impact that these cases had on the reservations themselves and how the victims are doing now. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Parallel Justice. We hope you'll listen in next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.